Welcome to another episode of Reimagining Cyber. This is Stan, and I'm with my co-host, Rob Arego. And Rob, you know, I don't know about you, but I've been in this industry a long time, and I've seen a lot of regulations and directives come and go. And, you know, it's important to keep track of what's what's up and coming. And I think that's what we're going to be focusing on today. Right. We're going to delve into the NIST-2 directive, which has come out of the EU. I shouldn't say come out of it. It's not new. It's evolved. But it's evolved with some serious teeth in it, and it goes actually into effect later in October of 2024. So I think you know we're going to have a great guest on to sh- to share with us his perspectives and what he's seeing living it in his world out in the EU, and get some guidance on what people should be thinking about. And and again, it's anybody who's doing business in the EU. So even U.S. based organizations or those in Asia need to be aware of this. So Stan, who do we have joining us for this episode? Rob, today we're joined by Bjorn Watney. Bjorn is currently the Senior Vice President and Chief Security Officer at Telenor Group and is also an advisor to Europol. Uh, he has more than 20 years of experience with information security and cyber risk management in Europe and in Asia, um, primarily with financial services, telecommunications, and critical infrastructure. Bjorn, it's great to have you as a guest today. And before we dive into our conversation, anything else you'd like to add for our listeners to know about your background? Well, first of all, thank you, Stan and, uh, and Rob, for uh, for having me. Uh, good to be here. And uh, as a curiosity, I guess it's interesting to know that I was never formally trained in security because when I was in university back in the late 90s, uh, even though I was in computer science, security wasn't really a topic. And right. it's not yes. that long ago. <laughs> At least I don't feel it is. So, so that's interesting because the world is, is really different now. And I also think it's it's worth mentioning that alongside my my career, my paid work, I've always kept myself busy with professional associations outside of the daytime job, like IC Square and, and ISACA, for example. And I found that that was a great way for me to stay up to date on the latest development of threats, technologies, standards, regulations, pretty much everything that I didn't learn in university. So yeah, I've been at it for a while. I think I think being active in those kind of working groups or associations is a great way of networking as well, right? I mean, getting to know those in your community. So that's great. Could you just expand so people understand a little bit more about Telenor Group? You know, I, they're a very large Telenor way, but just maybe a quick kind of, you know, what is Telenor all about? That way it puts a little bit more perspective on how it relates into yeah. the work that you've been doing. Yeah, certainly. So, so Telenor Group is a spinoff of the national telecom authority in Norway. So it's uh, 100 plus years old and it was privatized during the 80s and the 90s. We operate telecom companies out of all the four Nordic countries and we have also an expansion into South and Southeast Asia. So we effectively run telecom operations in Pakistan, in Bangladesh. We have some joint ventures, the largest operator in Thailand and Malaysia. We have a regional head office in Singapore, where we also have a procurement company. And we also have a business area focusing on adjacent businesses or services beyond connectivity. And in here, you will find a Telenor satellite. (laughs) You will find Telenor Connection, which is an IoT company, and a multitude of other investments and yeah, things that we are working on. So 
First and foremost, a telecom company, but we are much more. And we also produce or we provide content like television and security services and many, many other things. Our, our, our focus today, you know, Bjorn, is, is on the Network and Information Security 2 directive or NIST 2 within the European Union. And so, Bjorn, if, if you could offer to our audience a, a concise summary of, of the NIST 2 directive, emphasizing the, the, the key changes and enhancements as compared to what was in the original NIST directive. And, and also, I think it would be beneficial to understand the implications of these changes and have you know, what for organizations within the EU, and especially in light of the ongoing process of, of national implementation. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you're right. It is an evolution, more than a revolution here. And that being said, it's still a comprehensive upgrade, right, so to right. say, from the first iteration. Obviously, the threat landscape is changing. Geopolitical situation is changing. And also how we run businesses have changed a lot. Everything is dependent on on digital infrastructure these days and we have also delayered uh, a lot of the industry verticals so we have far more complex uh, and global supply chains for example uh, compared to what we did just seven or eight years ago so the major changes i guess you can i think i can summarize it in in five bullet points um the nis2 is is definitely there to baseline uh, cybersecurity uh, an up-to-date baseline uh, across essential entities in, in multiple industry verticals, uh, being that everything is now digital to a larger degree than it was before. It requires organizations to work systematically with, with security risk management and governance. It also requires organizations to step up significantly around crisis management and especially how they look at resilience the, in the operation. That's the main focus of our podcast has been around cyber resilience. So it makes sense. That's good. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, given the, the dependency that we have on the digital infrastructure these days for businesses or, or industries to be resilient to, to mm-hmm. attacks in that domain is becoming increasingly more important, hence the, the update to the, to the directive. But also it requires organizations to, be, to have a better control of all the supply chains specifically. I think we will probably touch on that later, but also incorporating audit rights along supply chains. And, and finally, I think it's worth mentioning that it puts much stronger requirements on, on reporting, and not just of, of incidents, but also of vulnerabilities that one might discover in, in, in products and services. Indeed, indeed. Now, 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 one of the things that we've seen, obviously, with the, with the directive is that most critical organizations, you know, verticals such as financial services, energy, healthcare, are are obviously falling underneath the NIST two directive. But maybe you can speak to, you know, maybe some other types of organizations being affected, and maybe even specifically discuss some of those implications relative to the telecom world that you, you that you obviously live in. And it'd be interesting to kind of get your perspective on that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And to be honest, I feel this is. This is a topic that's still being discussed. Uh, when looking at the directive, he was talking about both essential entities and important entities. And there is sort of a debate, where would you sort of be be defined? But given that as good as everything is online these days, apart from those you just mentioned, these entities would include organizations dealing with foodstuffs, transportation, 
water supply. So it's not just those traditional verticals like energy, financial services, but but you have these other commodities coming in as well. And in regards to the telecom industry, I mean, we could both be defined as digital infrastructure, obviously, uh, but we can also be a digital provider. And we could be even more depending on how many services uh, are we producing beyond just connectivity. And in many of the markets where, where we operate as a telco, we, we are already defined as national critical infrastructure in that, that market. So uh, the application of, of, of having to follow this too, in most of the markets, it won't mean we have to pull too much of an extra effort because we already fall under the national critical infrastructure and we have a lot of uh, regulatory requirements in place already. I think looking at it as we are right now, the step up that we need to do in crisis management and disaster recovery, and also maybe supply chain risk management, those are the ones where I see that there is a stretch target for us. But but other than that, we are already quite regulated as a critical infrastructure operator. So Bjorn, when you, when you look at the attack landscape and what sectors are, are typically targeted, let's face it, financial and healthcare sector organizations have the information that attackers many times want, right? And, and so drawing from your experience from the, the financial sector and your current role in telecom, can you shed light on, on some of the specific types of information that attackers are now targeting in these sectors? And, and how does this differ from the, the kind of data vulnerabilities and information that you'd find typically in the financial sector? A lot of the opportunistic criminals, they would be circling the financial services sector. And everywhere where you have money uh, or valuables in play, you will, you will find these criminal elements trying to, to gain possession. Um, some hundred years ago, they were robbing trains and, and post wagons. But the principle today is, is still the same. The difference is that nowadays they use a PC instead of a pistol to to, to rob you, right? But uh, in telecoms, the, the threat picture is, is quite different. Uh, there are some issues always around uh, fraud, um, but most of the threat actors that we're concerned about uh, would be the advanced uh, persistent ones or APTs, uh, that they're often called. Uh, we don't have that much money floating around, as you would find in, in financial services, but what we do have is something called uh, CDRs, or call detail records, and also possibilities of determining the physical location of devices, like, like a cell phone. So what it means in practice is that we have information on where people are, who they meet with, uh, who they talk to, and and what they talk about, and and this type of information is typically of interest to nation states and and other actors with access to vast amount of resources, and who also are very interested on spying on rivals, uh, dissidents. They could want to manipulate the outcome of political processes, amongst other things. So it's it's quite a different threat landscape that we're facing. It definitely is. But I think that's that's what's interesting. You've got that background in financial services. You, you know in that space what the attackers are targeting, right? They want to get into the data. They want to get some information they can come back and monetize, right? And, and there's a business typically associated to that kind of in the way they treat it. In your world, 
it really is nation state. It's 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 espionage in essence. It's going in and understanding intelligence as to kind of you know what are these individuals doing that we're tracking or additional information that we need to be aware of that may be coming. So it's 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 a pretty interesting world that you live in, Bjorn. I wanted to come back to the NIST two directive and talk about it from there's we, we know that there's ten minimum measures tied to the NIST. To directive, pick several of them if you don't mind, and kind of you know share with the audience some things that they need to be taken into consideration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I will. I will take it down to four. Then maybe the, uh, if we start from the beginning, the requirements that will now be more stringent around security, risk management, and governance. Uh, those I think are, are are really interesting. So you need to be able to prove that you have a process in place for identifying your assets, doing a business impact analysis, how much do these assets mean to your business? Uh, and then you have to look at the potential risks uh, that will circulate these assets. Uh, that is a requirement. It's, of course, always a good practice, but uh, but now there is no uh, going around it. You have you have to do it. So, uh, so that, I think, is very good. The second one I would like to highlight is when you understand what your crown jewels are, because that's what you do during the business impact analysis, right? You find out what would hurt you the most to lose. Then there's also a requirement to to actually identify what are the resources that are required for these crown jewels to to operate, uh, including people. And then you are required to, to provide adequate training for these people, and you are required to to have processes in place on how you can restore them to, to an operating state if risk A, B, or C materializes. So that's what we would call a disaster recovery. Again, it's good practice and uh, something that you should have been doing, but but you will now be required to do it. And, and if you can't prove that you are, then there is a potential fine at the other end that, that would hurt <laughs> quite a lot. Obviously, the, uh, we, we touched it a couple of times already, but... Uh, the requirement on your level of control on supply chain is very interesting. And also the fact that you, in your contract, would have to make sure that you have audit rights also through the supply chain. I remember five years ago, we were trying to to make a contract on, on changing our intranet with this big social media company to use their, their business version as an intranet. Very difficult to get any form of audit rights into that contract, but but that's of course also changing now when it turns into regulation. So, so that is that is the thing, and and of course the the last point around requirements on incidents and vulnerabilities. If you look at all the regulations, again it comes with with the requirements. You had the GDPR. If you had a breach of personal identifiable information. You have a certain time window where you're obliged to report of the breach. But there are many of those with, with a lot of requirements on reporting. And, and what they're trying to do now is make that less cumbersome for the companies and only focus on the major or, or the critical incidents. But still, they are putting these requirements on more like these essential and important entities. And not just incidents, but also vulnerabilities. So if you discover, for any reason, what they call a zero-day or a new, an unproven vulnerability, there is no requirement that you report it to, to your peers and 
so they can yeah remediation quickly. So and also there is there is requirements there around uh, more collaboration. So yeah, basically those are the big things that I see worth mentioning in this too. You know, Bjorn, you you mentioned the impact of noncompliance could be painful. The authors of these kind of directives or regulations are always looking for ways to motivate either through carrots or sticks to get organizations to actually implement their, you know, requirements. In in the in the context of, of the NIST two directive, you know, what are those specific um, penalties that could be associated with noncompliance and you know, are these penalties uniform across all sectors? And again, we go back to the fact that member states are implementing these uh, requirements into national law. So does that have an impact as far as how penalties will be doled out? So, you know, and and, and does this too have any carrots as well? I mean, again, is it is it strictly, you know, the, the stick approach or are there any carrots associated with this too? Well, Asking me as a security professional, I think the carrot is that we will have a healthy digital infrastructure also across borders in the region, and that should be in, in anyone's interest. But the fact of the matter is that when when you look at security measures, like these advanced security measures, they, they cost a lot of money. And unfortunately, if you look at top management of most companies and most industries, Cybersecurity is still a bit of a black box. You know it's there and you've heard all these things, but you can't really fathom exactly what it is. But you see it comes connected with a huge cost. And and to take that cost is 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 hard. When you have a budget and you have financial targets to to meet. So unfortunately, we see that many times investments are not enough. And Bring on the GDPR. That happened a few years back. What EU was seeing was uh, a cool-down effect. Citizens were reluctant to use uh, digital services because they didn't like the possibility of their information being spread online, and, and then they would be the victim of identity theft down the line. So the EU saw the need to, okay, now we need to force these companies to do certain measures to reinstall this trust with the citizens in using the digital services. And at the time, they, they placed, well, if a company processing data on non-European citizens failed to comply with the GDPR requirements, they can be fined up to 2% of the worldwide turnover of that company or, or 10 million euros, which is, is a hefty fine. That sparked some initiatives in the financial services company that I was working in at the time. And... Yeah, and, and, and this is exactly what they're doing again, because like I said, it's it's hard to, the technology uh, is advancing so fast, so to get the competence of, of every threat and every possible risk and outcome correctly presented to top management and boards is difficult. So the regulatory bodies are helping us professionals here by putting this stick, which is first and foremost a stick, because within this too, if you have an essential entity like digital infrastructure, then the fines would be the same as, as a GDPR non-compliance. So it's a 2% of worldwide turnover for the company or, or 10 million euros. And if you belong to the important entity category, it's uh, it's still a hefty one. It's a 1.4% of the worldwide turnover or, or 7 million euros. So 
yes, it is it is a stick, but I think the the fact that we will all be better for it going down the line that's that's the carrot. So 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 it does the the penalty does vary based on whether or not you're placed in the essential sector category or important, but it will be consistent across all member states. Yes, it's it's supposed to be or it, it shall be uh, consistent. And uh, we will see how it eventually turns out. But with uh, GDPR, for example, if you're a European company with with locations in multiple um, multiple countries in the EU, it will be the regulatory body in the country where your headquarter is located that will be dealing with the, with the, with the EU if something happens in any of the countries where you are represented. So something similar, I would suggest, is happening here. So, so I, I can tell you, Bjorn, that uh, I'm glad to hear that there's really a stick behind this, as it was with GDPR. And I will also share with uh, you and the audience that I've already had many a conversation with uh, organizations in the U.S. that are really paying attention to what's happening with this too, because they're impacted, right? If they're doing business within the EU, they're impacted by this. So now they're having to figure out, okay, well, what is it that we have to uh, review? As you said, you got to go through the assessment. And if it's a business impact analysis, most likely they've already done that. But then what are the gaps? What are the gaps that are out there that they're having to fill in? So so kind of in wrapping things up, what I would like to get from your perspective is where do you start? Like what are some kind of quick wins, right? You know, as you're as you're going through this process, like what, what are the couple things that maybe you would share with the audience and kind of, hey, it's probably a good place to start here. Maybe just kind of you know, walk us through that. That'd be, that'd be helpful. I can make it sound easy, but it, it really never is. <laughs> but I would say that you, you always start with taking inventory because you can't protect the things that you don't know you have. And depending on the size and complexity of your business, you will find that taking inventory is, is often not an easy job. But you need to do that because you need to understand what it is you have and what it is that you need to protect. And when you got that, when you have a good asset registered and do the business impact analysis, find out what your most important assets are, then do a risk assessment, and then you apply controls according to the level of risk that you face. That's it. I mean, it, it, it can sound easy, and the process is, is quite similar to established best practices like ISO and, and NIST, but Again, with, with, with NIST 2, you, you just make sure that you also include the specifics like the reporting requirements and the vendor audit rights that are a little bit extra. But So, so just, just yeah. following up, Bjorn, on that comment, I mean, is it, is it fair to say that if, if your organization got certified to ISO 27001, that they're probably a long way there as far as the NIST 2 directive compliance, though there may be some specific this two requirements that are outside of the 27,001 that they need to look at. But in general, is that going to get them the majority of the way there? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Bjorn, I think it's been very insightful having you on to, to, to share what, obviously, you know, over in Europe, you guys are, are seeing and paying more attention to this. But as I just mentioned, I'm seeing it here domestically in the US as well. So it's becoming global view, obviously, because if you're doing business in the EU, it's going to impact you. As you stated, it sounds simple in doing some of these things that you know you should be already doing, taking inventory, being able to go through the the assessment. But I guess I just look at it as like if you haven't done it, get started, right? So get 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 out in front of this thing because it, it will impact you, and you're just about ten months out from it actually becoming reality. So 
Thank you for joining us today. Really appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a great discussion. Thanks, Bjorn. Hello, producer Ben here. And if you're listening to this episode in the few days after its initial publication, which was Wednesday, the 20th of December 2023, then you could well be filled with festive cheer. So here is a little Christmas gift to you. I'd like to point you towards episode three of Reimagining Cyber. It features Ron Ross, a computer scientist and fellow at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. He talked about how to build a strong cyber resilience strategy and also four goals to help achieve that. Here's a clip. This is really critical today because anticipation is another way of saying, uh, are, are you prepared for what is about to hit you? You know, this is one of the frustrations that I've had for a long time. We've been doing this threat vulnerability analysis forever. We can't control the threat space. The, the adversaries are, are throwing their best and their brightest at us 24-7. They're well-resourced, especially nation-state level resources and terrorist groups who are well-funded. They have the best attack tools out. And our vulnerabilities keep on growing. That was Ron Ross, and the episode is called Cyber Must Become More Resilient, episode three of Reimagining Cyber. Thanks so much for listening to the show. Do remember to rate, review and share. Goodbye.